0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.
1: Hello, I'm Lynn Eden. I'm a senior research scholar and the associate director for research at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at FSI. I'll briefly introduce our speakers and their topics And then since this is a panel on critical connections, I'll say a few words about how we might listen for the connections among them. Do I have your agreement? I emailed you, but do I have your agreement for 15 minutes? Okay, so uh, our speakers will speak for 15 minutes and I'll do what Scott did on the morning breakout session, which is at 12 minutes, I'll send them a nasty little note. At 15 minutes, I might have a a coughing fit. Uh, because I want to leave a lot of time for back and forth with the audience. First, I'll introduce our speakers. Uh, there are much fuller descriptions in the back of your conference booklet. I'll introduce them as they appear in the program and in the order in which they will speak. First, Larry Diamond. Larry is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, a professor of political science and sociology, by courtesy here at Stanford, and he coordinates the democracy program at the Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at FSI. Larry works in the area of comparative politics and is a leading authority on democratic development, regime change, and U.S. foreign policy as it affects democracy abroad. In the past two years, Larry has served as consultant to the U.S. uh, Agency for International Development, uh, AID. He's also co-director of the International Forum for Democratic Studies, of the National Endowment for Democracy, and founding co-editor of the Journal of Democracy. Larry is the author of, uh, well, I counted four books from his website, but then when I looked more closely, he has a book coming out in 2008. Uh, so he's the, uh, the author of uh, a, a number of books, uh, and uh, editor of over two dozen, and author of many articles. His most recent book, that is his most recently already published book, is based on his experience in Iraq advising the U.S. government on how to implement democratic government. The title is Squandered Victory, the American Occupation, and the Bungled Effort to Bring Democracy to Iraq. We know that Larry is not going to uh, put his foot around as he gives his talk today, uh, and he'll talk today on Stabilizing Iraq, the regional and international stakes. Scott Sagan is professor of political science at Stanford and co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, and also senior fellow at FSI. Uh, Scott is in the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, when I first wrote Larry's Up, uh, uh, I thought he wasn't in the program book. The copy I had was defective, so all right. Scott's research uh, and policy advising is on the safety and security of nuclear weapons in complex organizations and issues of nuclear proliferation, the causes of proliferation particularly in but not limited to South Asia, and how we can strengthen nuclear nonproliferation. Scott is historically minded and has written important work on the history of U.S. uh, nuclear weapons policy uh, and is the author or co-author of a number of books, one of which with Kenneth Waltz is going into its third edition. Uh, He's also the editor of several more books and the author of numerous articles, including a recent article in Foreign Affairs on how to keep the bomb from Iran. Scott will talk today on assessing and addressing nuclear risks. Rosamund Naylor is the Julie Wrigley Senior Fellow at FSI and the Woods Institute uh, for the Environment here at Stanford. She directs the program on food security uh, and the environment and the Goldman Honors Program in Environmental Science, Technology, and Policy. An honors program, this is a really outstanding undergraduate honors program that we at CSAC have shamelessly and I think successfully copied. Roz is also a professor by courtesy in the Department of Economics. Her research focuses on the environmental and equity dimensions of intensive food production and she brings to bear expertise in environmental science and economics. Uh, Roz has done research uh, throughout the world on issues of aquaculture uh, production, high-input agricultural development, biotech, climate-induced yield variability, and food security. Roz, being in the sciences, publishes articles, not books, and she has published very widely, including two recent articles in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and a recent article in Science. Roz will talk on food security and the environment. Since this is a panel on critical connections, I want to invite you in the audience from the get-go to think about the potential connections about what might seem to be possibly disparate topics, Iran, nuclear risk, and food security, and to encourage you in the discussion period to try to draw out connections among the talks. Before we start, let me very briefly suggest four possible connections. First, and probably not coincidentally, each speaker is discussing at least one of the three themes of the Stanford International Initiative launched a couple of years ago. Uh, Those themes are improving governance locally, nationally, and internationally, pursuing international security, and advancing human well-being at the individual level. We might also say that Larry, speaking on Iraq, is addressing an immediate threat. Scott, speaking on nuclear risks, is addressing a medium-term threat. And Roz, speaking on food security, is addressing a long-term threat. I think the speakers may, in fact, suggest this themselves. I'm not actually sure that this layering holds up, since Iraq is likely to have at least medium, if not long-term, ramifications. Nuclear risks could have immediate and long-term ramifications, and food security is also an immediate threat. Uh, But since I haven't heard these talks, uh, perhaps this time dimension will in fact prove very powerful. Let me briefly suggest two other possible connections. One is climate change, which is not specifically represented on the panel. uh, and it was, of course, touched on this morning in the session on uh, nuclear power uh, and, uh, and, er- and, uh, and otherwise. And it's explicitly featured in Ra's breakout panel in the next hour. Climate change clearly affects food security. Climate change also makes nuclear power a much more attractive option than it had been. And this brings on attendant risks of nuclear proliferation. And how can we tie this into the ramifications uh, of Iraq for regional stability? Well, for one thing, we can say that the increasing attractiveness of nuclear power is likely to have large ramifications for stability in the Middle East. Uh, And I'm sure there are many more connections that we can draw. Fourth, and finally, we're dealing here with large macro-historical processes. Looking back at historical processes, one is always struck by the large role of unanticipated interactions, many of them leading to bad consequences. Looking forward, we can expect something broadly similar. Our ability to understand complicated interactions and to make precise predictions is limited. But we can be sure that if we are not aware of potential pitfalls and are blithe in our attitudes, then our future will will be far more fraught than it otherwise could be. On that happy note, and we are trying to be upbeat here today, let me turn to Larry.
2: Well, thank you, Lynn. Uh, thank you all for coming. And if someone who has anything to do with this conference would come up here and get this slideshow working, I'd be very grateful. It's on. It's on. I think you just do this. It's on. Okay, good. Um, yeah, well, it, it has not been often in the last uh, three and a half years since I returned from Iraq that anyone could say the words, upbeat, and Larry Diamond is going to talk about Iraq in the same sentence but actually uh, what I'm going to say today presents a very different picture of what's happening on the ground in Iraq and what could, I underscore could, transpire in the future uh, than what I would have said six months ago and indeed what I have been saying for the last three years about Iraq. Uh, There are now multiple indications from a wide variety of sources, including American military officers, journalists and Iraqis in Iraq that I have been in contact with, that things on the ground in Iraq generally have improved quite substantially in recent months. As I will show in a minute with these slides, violence in particular is down around the country and with this has come a new sense of hope and possibilities and a return to something approaching normalcy in many Iraqi communities. A major reason for this improvement is the so-called surge in American troops, which took the total number of American troops up by 30,000 additional US combat troops between February and June of this year, uh, increasing the total number of troops to about 168,000. This increase, in my opinion, is something that should have happened three or four years ago. Indeed, it should have happened at the time uh, that we entered Iraq. Even though I underscore, most of you know it, I think the decision to invade was a very, very serious mistake. It is something that is an increase in troops that uh, we now know Ambassador Bremer asked for early in his tenure as the uh, administrator of the American occupation. It is something that many of us in Iraq, I was there between January and April of 2004, um, pleaded for, myself in a letter to Condoleezza Rice as I was leaving in April of 2004 to no avail. It has had an impact. The question is whether this will have or even at this point can have a lasting impact. It is not only the increased number of American troops that have mattered in recent months. Several other things have changed. First we have a commanding general in Iraq, David Petraeus, who is is pursuing a more classic and effective counterinsurgency strategy with the increased troops, getting them out into the communities and neighborhoods, partnering with local Iraqi forces, regular and irregular, seeking to build trust, restore communities, take and hold territory. Second, this new military-sized force and strategy has come at a propitious moment when the Sunni Arab heartland in Iraq has had its fill of the ruthlessness and intimidation of Al-Qaeda and wants them gone. Hence, they have joined with American troops, possibly only in a temporary alliance, but a very useful one, to crush Al-Qaeda. While Al-Qaeda is not quite dead in Iraq, it is crippled and discredited, and if we do not blow it, this could become one lasting achievement in Iraq. The worst nightmare we faced there was that the Sunni Arab heartland would become, in fact it was becoming, a recruitment training and operational ground for al-Qaeda to strike at the west and destabilize not only Iraq but neighboring regimes in the region. Because of the military and political developments on the ground in Iraq in recent months, with most Sunni communities turning decisively against these terrorists, That nightmare scenario has been turned back and it's vital to our national security that that achievement not be allowed to deteriorate. Third, because al-Qaeda has largely been put out of business, the fear and terror that reigned until recently in so many Iraqi communities have been dramatically diminished. And so have the horrific car bombings, as I'll show in a moment, and other atrocities that massacred huge numbers of Iraqi civilians and frankly had the intended effect of inducing uh, reverse sectarian bloodletting from uh, the Shiite death squads. Fourth, the Iraqi army appears to be becoming at least somewhat more effective, more integrated, more able to at least hold territory and secure the trust of its own people. The great unanswered questions are how far will this proceed before the United States has to start drawing down these increased troops probably by no later than next spring and whether the police who are abysmally sectarian, politicized, brutal and incompetent and therefore largely useless for restoring order and faith in the future can somehow be reformed and reorganized. Fifth, I might add that the Bush administration has also pursued a more effective strategy of reaching out politically to the Sunni Arab communities, something again we pleaded for when I was there, and reaching out as well to many local Shiite communities, building alliances in some measure of trust. Now I want to turn to uh, the data, the most recent data that is available from the marvelous service uh, organized by Michael O'Hanlon and his colleagues at the Brookings Institution, called the Iraq Index. If you just go type in Iraq Index, Brookings Institution, you'll get to the web page, hit on the latest index available, and you'll get 70 pages of extraordinary information. The best we have. Not all of it, you know, can possibly be accurate. A lot of it is out of date, but it's the best we have. And um, this picture uh, that I'm going to paint to you with some statistics does correspond um, to what we're hearing from, I think, quite objective analysts on the ground, including a number of very fine journalists. First of all, you can see not only do we have 30,000 additional troops in Iraq, but um, we have uh, quite a substantially greater number in Baghdad, with the number of troops increasing uh, deployed for security in Baghdad from about 2,700 in February to about uh, almost 17,000 by uh the middle of this year. Uh, secondly, um, you see uh very dramatic evidence of um, uh reductions in the uh fatalities uh for Iraqi military and police. Uh with the first spike Oh. Yeah, good. No. Okay, the first spike uh, came, this isn't working very well, but if you see on the left hand side, the first spike came in mid 2005, where you had as many as 304 Iraqi military and police killed in a single month. Then you had another spike in um, mid 2006 around here, and then it just got to be disastrous. This spike here of 300 killed was in April of 2007. But we're down, you know, to 100 or less in recent months and uh, even uh, fewer um, this month so far. Then if you look at the number of multiple fatality bombings, principally the horrific car bombings that have brutalized and terrorized the society, again, you see, uh, we have to look at the evidence, uh, whatever you feel about American involvement, um, this catastrophic spike as al-Qaeda really sunk its claws into the society from um, first, this is 2005, uh, the first spike on the left-hand side and then the big cluster is uh, sort of the middle to late 2006, beginning of 2007, but as the surge has taken hold, you see this steady decline and by now in uh, December, You know, we've gone uh, in November so far. This is kind of at mid month now. We've gone from a high of 69 car bombings a month at one point to just eight so far this month as of about three days ago. Uh, And as a result, of course, the number of Iraqis who've been killed and wounded in these car bombings the top uh, line, the pink line you see, is the wounded. The bottom, darker, deep blue line is the killed, and the number of Iraqis killed uh, has, in recent months, uh, declined very significantly, back down to levels that we haven't really seen since uh, 2003. And here you see uh, estimated figures from the UN office there of the total number of Iraqi civilians killed by month. And of course it's only an estimate. They count the bodies that turn up in the morgues around the country, but I have always been convinced that there were a lot of Iraqis dying each month that weren't represented in these figures. But the bottom line is a quite dramatic decline. We were really sliding into the deep abyss of civil war in this country uh, by late last year. And with the new tactics, the new commander, by far the most effective we've had on the ground there, and the increased number of troops with a more effective counterinsurgency strategy. We've gone basically from having about 100 Iraqis die a day, which really is civil war, I think by any term, to something more like 30. It's still a very bad number, but it's a number that um, is not uh, producing the widespread fear and displacement that it had been. This is the estimated number of killed First of all, in all of Iraq, and then in Baghdad in the, in the lower pink line, according to Pentagon figures, which are generally slightly lower than international figures, but in any case, you see the trend. This has corresponded with a trend of uh, a more modest decline, at least through September, in the number of displaced uh, persons in Iraq. It's important to estimate that there could be as many as over 4 million Iraqis That's over 15% of the population that have been displaced by this civil war. Uh, About 10% of the population has left the country, two and a half million Iraqis, and possibly another two million are internally displaced. With this has come a a significant decline in U.S. troop fatalities. Um, The arrows mean the start of a calendar year, so the first left one is 2004. 2005, 2006, 2007. And then you see in the far right hand uh, just a very dramatic decline. Uh, The top uh, graph, which is the one you should focus on, is uh, in the overall number of American casualties, which declined from 123 uh, a month earlier this year to around averaging 100, but has now been down to 62 Uh, in September, 38 in October, so far 20 in November. Now let me say, this month has been, uh, this year for uh, America in Iraq has been so bad that even with this sharp decline, we already passed a couple months ago the threshold of the year 2007 being the most deadly year for the United States in Iraq with by then over 850 Americans killed. But still, uh, the trend is moving in a hopeful direction. The same is true with U.S. troops wounded in Iraq. And then you have the situation of Iraqi uh, crude oil exports recovering a bit, uh, having their best uh, November in four years, up to 2.4 million barrels produced, almost 2 million exported. Electricity generation, the goal has been, and it's not even enough now, 6,000 megawatts uh, and we haven't been getting there. Uh, Let me just say the problem is that we have not matched this with political progress. And as a result, if you look at um, some of the benchmarks that have been set by the United States itself for reform in terms of sharing oil revenue, I'm going to have to move through this quickly, uh, but this is all on the website of the Iraq Index, Reversing debathification, scheduling provincial uh, elections. All of this has been, you know, should have happened either years ago or by early this year uh, after delays that, you know, everyone had you know, uh, been disappointed with. Um, and, you know, all of the political agreements that need to be made to create a more organic foundation for settling this conflict and giving different communities in Iraq a raison d'etre to um, commit to the future in a peaceful way, virtually none of this has been achieved. And so while there has been very significant, it can be overstated, but very significant progress on the ground tactically and to some extent strategically in a military and security sense, and therefore an immediate feeling of greater security and hope None of this has been matched in the political realm by constitutional uh, compromise on the big issues that are dividing the country. So I just want to conclude uh, with the following. We are therefore at a hopeful moment militarily and tactically in Iraq, but we're still stuck politically with a stalemate on the big questions about the constitutional future of the country federal uh, versus unitary, the division of um, oil revenue, the character of the state. The harsh, harsh fact which none of the praise singers for this surge are seriously confronting is that the military progress on the ground is not sustainable without political progress toward reconciliation in Baghdad as well as the provinces. Unless we can figure out how to induce and mediate a grand bargain at the center, constitutionally, and demand better, less corrupt, more purposeful governance at every level, but particularly the center, the fragile progress of the last few months, one with the sweat and blood of many American and Iraqi soldiers could all go down the drain. There is an image that haunts me at this moment. In the 1990 movie Awakenings, Robert De Niro plays a patient who wakes up from a long period of encephalitis-induced stupor and helplessness into lucidity as a result of a new treatment. Other patients follow and a surge of joy and relief grips the affected families, only to see the patients inexplicably and permanently relapse soon thereafter to their prior state. I fear that the current surge with all of its manifest hope and progress, could prove to be like the awakening in that movie. A brilliant, inspiring moment of possibility that cruelly slips away. Only if we can capitalize on the military gains of the past few months, with a political strategy to settle the differences in Iraq, and a parallel strategy to encourage and insist upon better governance in Baghdad, can we stand a decent chance Of avoiding that cruel fate, one which would have extremely costly consequences for the national security of the United States, not to mention the stability and well being of Iraq and the broader region. Thank you.
3: That's easy. In 1963, John F. Kennedy famously relayed his nuclear nightmare that by the 1970s there may be 15 or even 20 nuclear weapon states. We now know that that is not true. It did not come to pass. But was Kennedy's fear inaccurate or was it only premature? Today I'll be talking first about where we are in the nuclear world, presenting some graphs, but then talking about the treaty that has thus far kept Kennedy's nightmare to be uh, a, a fear rather than a reality and what the challenges are to that. We have nine nuclear weapons states today and yet Kennedy's fear was not entirely inaccurate. Indeed, if you go back now with historical documents, we can document at least 14 cases in which states either started explicit nuclear programs or tied nuclear research and power reactor programs to military organizations inside the country, suggesting that they were pursuing an option. And the fact that so many, indeed all but two, now have abandoned that effort is a very positive historical note. But what will the future bring? There is no agreed upon measure of nuclear latency. But if you take the number of states that have nuclear weapons and then add another chart showing how many states have started nuclear research reactors, enriched uranium programs, plutonium, reprocessing programs, or nuclear power reactors, you come up with a rough sense of how many states have at least developed some technological expertise and have development of some fissile materials going on in their country. And that number, to have over 60, is a quite stunning sense of where we are heading. The difference between the nine nuclear weapon states that we have and the many more that could exist in the future is both a sign of the success of the nonproliferation treaty, but also a sign of the challenges that we have in front of us. The treaty has four main bargains embedded in it. Each one of them, unfortunately, is cracked today. The first is a deal between the nuclear weapon states Saying, I won't give nuclear weapons or related technology to my friends if you agree not to give it to your friends. The second is also a solution to a collective action problem. It's a, I won't, if you won't deal between the non-nuclear weapon states. Saying, I won't develop nuclear weapons if you, my neighbors, don't develop nuclear weapons. And we'll have the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Verify that by inspecting both of us. That too is being challenged. The f- third major aspect of the treaty is in Article 4, in which it states that all states who sign the treaty, nuclear weapon states or non, this will not affect their inalienable right, as the Iranians constantly remind us, to develop nuclear power, but they forget to remind us that this is true in conformity. With article one and two that is you have to be following the second part of the treaty in order to have that right that is being challenged and lastly the disarmament pledge under article six in which the non-nuclear weapon states said this treaty is not going to be an unfair treaty in perpetuity that we will agree to work in good faith towards the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. I should remind you that since the United States has signed and ratified the treaty, that is United States law, that we must work in good faith towards the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. Well, who are the main states that have challenged these? And I will, in my remaining time, comment on four, one for each. First, Pakistan, clearly to my mind, is the major challenge in many ways, but in particular as a challenge To Article I because they were not a member of the NPT, developed nuclear weapons, and now have started a massive export program under AQ Khan, the head of their enrichment program. He turned a covert import program, bringing in materials and technologies from around the globe to develop. Pakistani highly enriched uranium for his own program into an export program selling, offering to Saddam Hussein both centrifuge technology and bomb design. The Iraqis turned it down because they thought it was a CIA plant, but we did not know about it. He also, we now know, sold centrifuges and bomb design to Libya. He sold centrifuges, and we're not sure what else, to the North Koreans, and sold centrifuges, and now the Iranians just yesterday turned back some documents that they claim AQ Khan gave to them unsolicited, which were um, blueprints on how to make, how to cast metal, uranium metal, into a hemisphere useful for bomb-making purposes. They claimed they didn't do anything with it, and it was just a, a freebie in the package that he gave to them. What did Dr. Khan do? How did this take place? Well, one connection to the other issues here is the issue of corruption in a state and lack of authority to implement laws, because this was not following Pakistani laws and the agreements that other agreements they have made. And yet the Pakistani official story is that this is one of negligence, not complicity. The government they claim was not, complicit in this, and therefore they have put Dr. Khan under house arrest and say that they have shut down the program, he paid off the security guards, and that therefore they didn't report it. It was only after the CIA, George Tenet, went to President Musharraf that he found out about it and shut it down. I would like to present today at least two pieces of evidence that suggest that this may be over the line, more towards complicity rather than negligence. The first is from President Musharraf's own memoirs in which he acknowledges in these memoirs published just last year, that in 1999, quotes, I received a report suggesting that some North Korean nuclear experts, under the guise of being missile engineers, had arrived at the Khan Research Laboratory and were being given secret briefings on centrifuges, including some visits to the plant. I took this very seriously. The chief of the general staff, the the director of our intelligence services, and I called in AQ Khan for questioning. He immediately denied the charge. No further reports were received, but we remained apprehensive. When the chief of staff of the Pakistani army calls a scientist in and he says, oh, no, we didn't do any of that, and nothing else happens, is that negligence? Or does that reflect complicity? The second piece of evidence is this picture itself. This is the um, Khan Research Laboratory's brochure given to me in Rallapindi a few years ago that was given commonly to trade shows trying to sell dual capable vacuum tubes and other activities being done there, being done openly, showing only civilian products. If you, however, blow up the corner of it, you see a gory missile used for nuclear deterrence against India. This was not a secret in Ralapindi, about what AAQ Khan was doing. Indeed, he was advertising it, not so subtly, with his brochure. Next challenge, Oops, I have to go back, North Korea. Very briefly, you see here a picture of Siegfried Hecker and John Lewis, my CSAC colleagues, looking down into the spent fuel ponds at the Yongbyon reactor. In 2002, the United States confronted the North Koreans with evidence that we believed that A.Q. Khan had given, him, given them enrichment technology. And much to our surprise, in the State Department, the North Koreans at least temporarily suggested, "Yeah, maybe that's right." There's nothing you can do about it. And withdrew from the treaty and kicked out the IAEA inspectors. They went on to reprocess plutonium and last year, in 2006, tested in a um, less than fully successful, but nonetheless tested a nuclear weapon. Now, the good news here is that through the six-party talks and direct contacts, mostly with Chris Hill from the State Department, there has been an agreement for disarmament, which has started dismantlement of the reactor which has started And there is an agreement to work towards eventual disarmament, but there are still remaining challenges. In particular, we're going to have to find out what happened to the centrifuges because this program that developed the nuclear weapons was done through plutonium reprocessing, a different way to get the bomb, and they have only started to share information about the AQCon network's contacts. And we're going to have to find out what else they've exported because there are concerns that they may be behind the Syrian, uh, potential reactor that was bombed by Israel. And if they have, if the North Koreans have started exporting some of their materials or their technology, it's going to cause a difficulty in the negotiations. Third, a challenge to article four is that the Iranians have started to enrich uranium claiming that they have an inalienable right and refused despite UN Security Resolution 1747 to suspend that program. And if you enrich uranium for a power reactor and have that capability, you can continue running the centrifuges with the same material and eventually it will become bomb grade material. Iran today has rejected both the resolution that calls for immediate suspension prior to there being any talks with the United States or other negotiations, and has demanded that Russia continue to help with the Bushir reactor, and has rejected plans that both the Russians have floated and that Mohammed al-Bahadai and a group of Gulf states to have an international fuel bank so that Iran can have nuclear power but not develop the fuel themselves of that particular problem. I remain at least agnostic about whether that current rejection could be reversed. Certainly, it would be difficult and unlikely that Ahmadinejad would do that, but his successors may have a different set of objectives and a different set of balances of costs and effects. But I would note, as you see here in the new 50,000 real note, that the Re- Iranian government is putting nuclear power into their currency so that they feel, the public feels that this is a matter of pride and they can't give up that capability. So any potential negotiation, it seems to me, has to aim towards having nuclear power without having fuel fabrication in Iran. For that to take place, I believe that the United States is going to have to make some efforts to reduce our threat to the Iranian regime. Every time that the president or the vice president says to the American public, or in the case of the vice president on an aircraft carrier, that all options are on the table to stop Iran getting nuclear weapons, that just goes into Iran's domestic politics by saying the United States is threatening us and we need to create an option. Three options are coercive diplomacy, an increase in the kinds of um, sanctions that have been mildly put into effect, but there is a lot more that could be done. That is my hope that that could succeed. My fear is either that there'll be military force used, which I think would be counterproductive, or that we will learn to try to live with the potential of a Iranian bomb, which I also think would be highly dangerous. And let me then, in conclusion, turn to the last challenge, which I think is the United States. In terms of Article 6 of the NPT to work in good faith towards the eventual elimination, we have frankly not not kept up our side of the bargain. And you see here the gang of four, George Shultz, Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, and Bill Perry, who in the Wall Street Journal last year called for a major effort to renew our commitment under Article 6 to work in good faith towards the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. And the first step clearly there is the comprehensive test ban, where we, when we got the treaty put into perpetuity in 1995, agreed that the signing and ratification of the comprehensive test ban would be the litmus test by which nuclear weapon states, non-nuclear weapon states would know that at least we're working in the right direction by not building new types of weapons. The Senate has not ratified that treaty, and until they do, I believe our negotiation ability with other states will be very limited there will still be major problems down the road of the instability of small numbers and breakout problems that many of us here at Stanford and elsewhere are working on but we have to make progress in the right direction for diplomatic progress to take place last slide I should be at least somewhat optimistic in the second year of the next administration whether it is a Republican or a Democratic administration they will have a major nonproliferation review conference I was at the 2005 conference which was an abysmal failure with no written statement at all coming out of the treaty because they could not agree even on what to disagree about. Any potential agreement at that review conference at the UN, I think for it to be positive has to be based on progress towards a peaceful resolution of both the Iranian and North Korean crises. It has to have progress towards some type of fuel bank so that states That want to develop nuclear power can do so without requiring them to build the nuclear uranium enrichment or reprocessing capability that gets them closer to the bomb but lastly for the united states to credibly argue to others that they should sacrifice some of their independence and sovereignty by agreeing to fuel banks and other kinds of restrictions we're going to have to demonstrate good faith by accepting some restrictions Ourselves. And I believe the first and obvious litmus test would be to do what we said we would do 10 years ago and ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. I'll conclude there. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Scott and Larry. Um, and welcome to all of you to Stanford. Uh, I want to talk about a different realm of security to end this session, and that's the realm of human security. Um, this is not a topic that most Americans think about every day, and it's really not a risk that most Americans feel every day. But as we've heard from earlier talks, at least a billion people do feel acute human security risks every day. and. I think my goal here today is to convince you that it's worth paying attention to on moral grounds at a minimum, but also because of the types of civil disruption and conflict that can emerge as a result of these risks. Um, this concept really grew out of Kofi Annan and his leadership of the UN um, when he toured around the world with one of our colleagues, Scott, or Steve Stedman, who was then on leave at the UN, and talked to leaders around the world, civilians, different government agencies, and said, what are the major security risks that you're really worried about? Not surprisingly, in the United States, we're worried about the risks you've just heard about, terrorism and nuclear proliferation. But overwhelmingly, in the developing world, when they went and asked these questions, it was risks of human security. Hunger, infectious disease, resource depletion, and I'll add climate change to that, and civil conflict. And the connections between these three um, that cycle again and again are, I think, the connections that make them most daunting. So uh, Kofi Annan has really given us this new concept of redefining security um, that we're working on within the international initiative now. When we look at the numbers here, and this has been said a little bit today, Um, But it's really quite amazing to me that that about 15% of the world's population is living under a dollar a day. And these numbers are purchasing power adjusted. It's insufficient for an adequate nutrition or to lead a productive and healthy life. And when you look at the poorest regions of the world, particularly poor areas of sub-Saharan Africa, they're not even close to a dollar a day. It's closer to 60 cents a day. So the depth, the severe depth of poverty, is really just uh, very critical in some regions of the world. I think the number that amazes me even more is that half of the world population is under $2 a day. So over 3 billion people are under $2 a day. And those people are really vulnerable to the types of disruptions we're seeing with the rise in Food prices due to biofuels with the disruptions with climate change and so forth. And so I guess what we should ask ourselves as part of the international community here is, is this the path we really want to be on with half of the world living under $2 a day? You know, we're focused on power and prosperity in this session, and I think we've had some wonderful talks on the real, you know, prospects of power and prosperity. But the, the balance is tilted here. And the question is, you know, what is this going to mean for us as a global community in the future? So we'll start with the Millennium Development Goals, which were set in 2000, and two of the major goals here were to reduce the number and the percentage of people living in hunger hunger and poverty by one-half by 2015, and this is using a baseline from the early 90s. And well into halfway through this period right now, we've seen virtually no progress towards this goal at all. And it's slightly balanced, again, regionally. East Asia, particularly China, has had phenomenal growth and has had phenomenal success, I would say, in bringing people out of poverty. And India is doing that to some extent, although we've heard there's some huge difficulties in that country as well. Areas like sub-Saharan Africa still remain dismally in poverty, and I think that, you know, we're really waiting to see and to figure out how we're going to really attack this problem. It seems like we've been dealing with this problem for decades and decades, and are we putting the kind of imagination and creative thought into actually solving the problem? And this is uh, sort of the focus of my research you know the types of hunger outcomes that you see are measured very easily in children and so a lot of the statistics now are measured in what's happening to the children under five years old now and as you can see from this picture I mean the obvious outcomes are either this child is going to live through this experience or the child is going to die but the hunger outcome that's really most insidious in this whole equation is the third outcome and that is long-term mental disability and physical disability associated with chronic hunger. And when you have a population um, and a whole cohort that is suffering from this sort of deprivation, it builds into the whole population and makes the development process enormously difficult to reverse. So let's connect this now to the deadly connections, to the conflict that we've been talking about, and ask the question, what what kills people out there? And these numbers are annual totals estimated on an average around the decade of the turn of the century here. And you can see that they're fairly rough, but uh, terrorism, when we look at national and international ter- terrorism, kills about 3,000 people each year. When we look at combat and we look at the number of combatant deaths that we see each year, we're up to about 20,000, so an order of magnitude different. When we look at the direct civilian deaths, and um, now we're talking about genocide and other associated deaths, we go way up again to 50,000 to 100,000 each year. And when we look at the indirect civilian deaths um, from conflict, what we often call the collateral damage from war, we go up another order of magnitude to half a million up to a billion, uh, half a million to a million people each year. And then we have our silent killer sitting down there, the one that we never really focus on or talk about in these sorts of discussions, and that is hunger and malnutrition, which kills an estimated six million to almost eight and a half million each year. And so um, the question is, can, if we're really worried about security, Shouldn't we be really worried about this part of the population as well? So this is what we would call collateral damages from war, or what I would call an absolute tragedy. This was a picture taken in Sudan in 1993 by Kevin Carter. It was actually a picture that won a Pulitzer Prize and really galvanized a lot of attention for the international community on an issue that most of the international community would really prefer to just turn its back on. And I can tell you a longer story about the photograph later. But the point I want to make here is this picture could have been taken in 2007. And what we don't want is this picture to be the poster child in 2015 when we're really measuring up our success of the Millennium Development Goals. And uh, so this is just a horrible scene here. Um, This summer there was a lot of press on Sudan and the thought that maybe what was happening in Sudan wasn't just warring conflict and political unrest, um, but climate change was due, you know, partially due to this. And, you know, a lot of uprising, oh no, let's focus on the human rights issue, let's not blame it all on climate change. But in fact, climate change is really going to devastate a number of these locations that are already living on the brink. And when we look at who the poor are, where they are, you know, over 50% actually own land but are in agricultural areas. Um, The remainder are either rural landless or pastureless. Only about 20% of the poor are actually in urban areas. And they're going to suffer from extreme increases in temperature, changes in precipitation, and you can see the water shortage problem that will arise from droughts in many locations different pest and disease problems throughout the world, and then sea level rise. And Bangladesh, as you know, floods anyway, is in the midst of a terrible cyclone right now. Um, This is actually deep water rice that's grown in Bangladesh. Pretty hard way to put the food on the table every day, but a huge area is gonna expand into this sort of flooded situation that we see right now in Bangladesh. And so, when climate experts really look at this issue, we tend to think about, about it if we compare the climate situation of the past century to what we'll see in this century. And what you see on the left there is the distribution of temperature over about 100 years in the 20th century. And in some years, you've had very cold temperatures. In some years, you've had very warm temperatures. And you see the mean temperature there. But what we expect by the end of this century is that our mean temperature is actually going to be what we see as the very hottest years today, and that's a scary prospect. But actually, when we take the global climate models and map them out, it's much worse than that. So I'm sorry I'm not bringing good news to, to this table, but I want to be thought-provoking. This is from four countries in uh, Africa and India. We could choose you know, 20 other countries in the tropics and subtropics to look at here, And what we see in all of these cases is the very coldest temperatures that we're gonna see at the end of this century are akin to the very warmest temperatures that we're seeing today. So we're gonna be in a whole new realm of climate that most people can't even comprehend. And those of you who were at the International Conference a few years ago might remember a talk that Hans Blix gave where he was talking about Iraq and the purported threats of Saddam Hussein the linkages to Iran, and he, you know, sort of summarized by saying, you know, when we look at the Middle East, these are huge and enormous risks we're gonna have to deal with. And he ended his talk by saying, but a much bigger risk than all of that is the risk of climate change. So what are we gonna do about it? Um, We're gonna spend more time talking about it in the breakout session, and, and my strategy has been to invite to young and extremely brilliant scholars who are really shaping this field to have more of a discussion on it. But when we look at what we're doing in this field, um, one is how do we think about adaptation? How do we think about preparing ourselves for the future? And um, our group has been working with the Global Crop Diversity Trust to just make sure we're collecting, storing all the genetic material for crops and characterizing it in ways that we can utilize the diversity we have to prepare for the future. That's just one example of many on the adaptation front. But also thinking about investments in rural development, agriculture, education, enabling an adaptation process to really occur in the world's poorest countries is extremely important. And we're seeing signs of attention to this. You know, the World Bank just released its World Bank Development Report, which really influences a lot of the international community. And for the first time in quite a long time, um, agriculture is the featured topic there. Uh, The philanthropic organizations, the Gates Foundation, Google.org, are taking on climate and adaptation in poor countries as a major focus of their activities. And although the, you know, the United States really hasn't, you know, committed to these kinds of investments and, um, and this sort of activity, other countries like China really have. And you see China all over Africa right now investing in a number of different ways. Um, but as my friend Larry Diamond reminds me, you know, these investments are pretty futile if there's not governance and proper management to actually make these funds uh, useful to these countries. And China, who's investing in countries with very poor governance like Sudan, you know, could cause more problems than they're solving in fact. So Larry and I are going to be working on this topic together. Um, I think it's really important. So um, let me just close with that and, you know, at Stanford in in terms of our role, the way we look at these issues is not to think about it from the ivory tower but to get out in the field. Um, On the left there is a graduate student of mine who came from Afghanistan after working on rural development for a number of years and um, our approach is to, to get out into the field to understand really what's critical uh, to the people in the countries that we're worrying about. And so I will end with that and open up to a broader discussion. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.